God, we thank you that you have shown us your great love in the person and work of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. We thank you that as you established your pattern of caring for your people in the Old Testament by guiding them with the fiery pillar and the cloud, by speaking to them through the prophets, that you have finally disclosed the mystery of the ages in Jesus. You've made known to us your great love. You've made known to us the plan that was your plan all along to reconcile us to yourself, to bring us into relationship with you as it is intended to be. And it's through Jesus. God, in the meantime, as we wait expectantly for him to return, as we wait for the renewal of all things, where you will make all things right, in this meantime, God, I pray that you would help us to live in such a way that it is no longer us who have professed Christ that that live, but rather Christ living in us and through us. I pray that we would rest in his complete and completely satisfying work. We would not try to strive to please you, but rather rest in what Jesus has done and live in response to that and let our worship be pleasing to you. So help us to believe. God, we believe, but help us. Thank you for Jesus, whose name we lift, whose glory we exalt. God, thank you for these truths that we can proclaim together in song. I pray that they would ring loud in our ears, even as we leave these spaces. I pray that the truths of the scripture would sink deeply into us as we dig deeply into them. Pray for the proclamation of the word. And pray that you would be glorified in the ways that we pray together and fellowship together in all these ways. Worship you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray and know that you hear us. Amen. You may be seated. Well, look, we, we live in a world where, where truly everything is big, but, but in a sense, nothing is beyond recovery. You could say the wrong thing and it could ruin your life. I understand that. But, but, but still, for the most part, we're constantly adjusting, making um, little tweaks here and there, and life is okay again. But, but what if after some physical struggles, it just like I've been coming on for a week, you go to the doctor and they, they do an MRI and the, and, and, and the doctor comes and says, I'm so sorry, but you've got two months to live, maybe three. Everything comes into focus very quickly. Now, your attention is focused far more than a question that asks you, what's the biggest goal of your life in a sermon? Maybe some of you live in, in, in fear of such a moment, and you're, and you're pretty upset that I've stoked those emotions. You know, It's like, yeah, that's what I'm afraid of. I'm going to the doctor this week. I'm sorry about that. In fact, I almost opened talking about how fear has been my constant companion. For those of you who know what I'm talking about and you're young, it gets better through time. But I get it. I feel your pain. But it's not likely the case for most of you. Instead, most of you uh, are, are in this place where you're hearing scientists tell you more and more, look, you're probably going to live to be 100 years old. And in fact, 
you're probably going to live a fairly decent life. You're, you're going to be in pretty good health living to 100. So why this morbidity to start the day? Like what happens if you've only got two or three months to live? Well, that's what preachers do, right? No, that's what life does. It, it hits us before we know it. No matter what age we are, things that we just never saw coming. And and, and while we are largely insulated from the ravages of disease and and other terrors here in our country, we know enough about the world at large to realize that something is just not right. We also know that on our way home from church today, someone may be just checking out a text and then life is all over. And we, we are aware that that could happen to somebody else in our church. Not to us, but it could happen to somebody. Okay, you get the point. But what if you're well beyond such a temporal view of life? What if you've dealt with these big issues? You, you recognize that life is fragile. And, and, and you believe with all of your heart that there is one true God. And he is known as he is as three persons in one nature. I mean, what if you believe that our God is a holy God and that he sent his son Jesus to die for sinners, but you're still not sure how it is you're supposed to relate to God? And and if truth be known, you're just not sure that everything is cool between you and God. Now, that's deep stuff, and it's important that you have the answers to those questions, whether you've got two or three months to live or 70 to 80 years to live. We need to know how to relate to God. So, having set the table, let me tell you what the main course is this morning. It's law and gospel. We're in a series in the book of Hebrews, and while our text points us in the direction of law and gospel, there's a lot more to say in Scripture. And so it's going to be somewhat of an unusual time this morning. I'm going to, we're going to look at portions of Hebrews 7, 11 through 28, and then we're going to be going to other places in in, in the word, and, and I rarely read a text and depart therefrom. But because of the repetition that's in Hebrews 7 through 10 and, and, and the nuanced ways that the writer is saying the same thing over and over, as we read that text and, and give meaning to the text like we did last Sunday on this particular text, then there's more that's being stated than you will get just from going through and saying, this is what this verse means, this is what this verse means. So we're looking at different themes, law and gospel this week, two covenants next week. And it seems like, well, aren't they the same thing? I mean, law is Old Testament, gospel is New Testament. So it's really, you're talking about the same thing? Not exactly. And that'll make sense as we go today. So if you're here for the first time today, it may feel a little bit disjointed, but it's kind of the flow of where we are in the book of Hebrews, and and you can always go back and listen to last week's message or all of the messages on Hebrews. Uh, You can connect on our website. Also, the manuscripts are there, the written manuscripts, which that can go a lot quicker uh, on our website. So it's our custom to stand when we read the Scripture. We don't always do that, but we do it most of the times, and we will do so this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand, if you would, please. And in Hebrews 7... Verses 11 to 28, we're not going to read the whole text, but just portions of it that specifically relate to uh, law and gospel, and, and some of these sections will be highlighted. 
Now, if perfection, and, and by the way, anywhere you go in Hebrews, it's going to start with a, 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 a transitional word of conjunction. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's now, or it's so, or it's therefore. It's one long argument, the entire book of Hebrews. So he starts in verse 11, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further would there then have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And that's pretty heavy stuff. Now verse 18, For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Never thought about the law being weak and useless. It's the law of God. Call it the Mosaic law, but it's God's law. He's not criticizing the law. He's just saying it couldn't do anything for us. The law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, talking about Jesus, because he continues forever. Consequently, or Jesus after the order of Melchizedek, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Jesus was everything we are not, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Father, we thank you for the perfect life of Jesus Christ who lived in a manner that was impossible for us to live and died a death that we deserved so that we might have life. Lord, as has already been said in song and in prayer, we believe, help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. God interacts with every human being on the basis of law and gospel. According to Romans 2, those who have the law are judged by the law. And those who don't have the law, well, they're judged by the law too because they actually have the law of God written on their hearts. And they are going to be judged by what they know is right or wrong. And of course, none of us can do fully right. So consequently, 
uh, they're judged for their sin. James 2.10 tells us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is accountable to the whole law. I'm always interested when someone is charged with a crime and they tack on as many crimes as they can to charge them. You know, it's not like you're charged with robbing the bank, but you're charged with um, assault with a weapon. Uh, If you push somebody, you're assaulting and uh, fleeing the scene and resisting arrest. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, if you're going to rob a bank, you're going to try to get away. But it's like boom, 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 boom. With the law of God... If you are guilty in one place, you're guilty of the entire thing. You're accountable to the entire law. Imagine that. The gospel, on the other hand, offers hope. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 11 to 14. Jesus kept the law perfectly, as none of us who inherited Adam's sin were able to do. So... We talk all the time about Jesus' death and how important it is, and indeed it is, and was and is. But his life was just as important as his death. His death is meaningless if he sins one time. Well, he was God. That's true. He was also 100% human. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. Could he have sinned? No. He couldn't have sinned. He was God. He could be tempted fully like we are, though, because he was human. He was 100% human. And we'll get into that in a few weeks where we talk about that more specifically. But when Jesus died on the cross, he was an eligible sacrifice. In fact, he became a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that was written in the Old Testament. It was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And through him, we receive the blessing of becoming God's children. The blessing of Abraham given to the nations. We receive this life by the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, what a gift to us. The Holy Spirit is. He's the seal of our salvation. The evidence that we have believed the gospel and thus that we belong to Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives has major implications for this Christian life. Then the ways in which we relate to God and the law-gospel dichotomy in Scripture. So, in order to fully appreciate the gospel, we have to fully understand the law. We're going to talk about the purposes of the law. We're going to list three. I, I would really like to list four, four or five different purposes uh, especially this first one I, I would like to divide up. But Douglas, like Douglas Moo does, there are certain theologians that do, but most theologians talk about three purposes of the law. And so I'm going to stick to that, the first of which is to display the righteous character of a holy God and to reveal our utterly sinful condition, pointing us to Jesus. That's a mouthful, isn't it? The law displays the holiness of God. Be holy for I am holy. So says Leviticus 20, 26. As God gives the law to his people, he requires holiness from them because he is holy and he made us in his image. All of the dietary laws, all of the laws about hygiene indicate a God who is perfect. You ever gone to someone's home 
And it's such a nice place, you don't hardly want to move. You really don't even want to breathe, much less move. You're afraid you'll break something that costs, I don't know, $25,000 or something. Or at the very least, you'll get it dirty. You'll smudge it, you know. You, before you sit down, you're kind of wiping. Let's don't do anything to dirty this up. There is no human analogy that can come close to approximating the difference in the gulf between God and humanity. Another one of those things we'll talk about in a few weeks. Adam was created with original righteousness. We talk about original sin all the time. Adam was righteous, but when he fell, we fell with him. And the law makes us not only aware of God's holiness, but also of our own sinfulness. God made provision in the law for our guilt, though, for our sin by animal sacrifices, but it was just a temporary covering waiting until the day. Look, I'm not putting this verse up today, and it's a very important verse in Romans 3 where it talks about God overlooked sins looking toward the cross. As I've mentioned before recently, I believe, it's not that the Old Testament saints were looking towards the cross. Nobody understood the cross in the Old Testament. Nobody in Jesus' day understood the cross. Nobody got it. They were looking toward a Messiah, but you know what? God was looking toward the cross. And he said it's going to be the blood of Christ that will cover every sin of those who repent and believe in Jesus. Past, present, future, all of that. As the author of Hebrews is going to tell us, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And somehow we knew that. Even it, I'm speaking as if I'm living in Old Testament days. We, we, we have known all along that this is not ultimately going to do it. It has to be done over and over and over. And what if, what if you've sinned and somehow the sacrifice hasn't been given for that particular sin? You're in, you're in, a, in a heap of trouble. So we always must have had an idea that that the sacrificial system was pointing to something or, 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 or rather to someone. And that someone was Jesus. So what about Jesus? Did he come and say, hey, bad news. The law requires perfection. Good news. I'm doing away with the law. I didn't say that at all. Jesus upped the ante. I mean, no longer is, is murder a sin, but Hatred of your brother is a sin. No longer are you guilty of adultery if you get caught in the act, but you're guilty of adultery if you think about it in your mind. The sin is higher now. The the standard is higher now. Your your enemy compels you to walk uh, a mile, as the Romans could do. Hey, Jew, take my back for a mile. They knew exactly how far a mile was. Jesus said, go to. Here's the standard of Christ. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. That's what he says in Matthew 5, 17 and 19. Let's take the time to look at this. This is important. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's it's, it's better to say not that Christ did away with the law. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all of the the requirements of the Sabbath, the temple sacrificial system. Jesus is everything. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. He's everything. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's, uh, so now we know where Jesus stands on the law. Second, here's what the law does for us. It regulates behavior and restrains evil. The Mosaic law was given to regulate the behavior of God's people as we have already seen. God's law was written on the hearts of all men and women, whether they belong to the covenant family of God or not. And, and God destroyed the entire earth in Noah's day with the exception of those eight souls that were on board. So people paid for their sin all the way along. But now the law is given to regulate behavior and to restrain evil amongst God's people. Aren't you glad that God's law restrains evil in the world? You just think if we lived in a lawless society. Are you grateful for the law? Or does it frustrate you when it doesn't serve your own purposes? Jim McLaughlin and I ride over here frequently for different meetings from our little place in Fuquay there. And and we complain a lot. Well, I complain a lot, whether Jim does or not. He just listens to me. He doesn't know. He doesn't. He, He listens to my complaining and says, Brad, you ought to be more spiritual than that. Um, but the, the stoplight at Purfoy and, and, and Old Honeycutt, it, it's enough to drive a sane man right out of his mind. If you're trying to turn left, you're on Old Honeycutt, you're trying to turn left. And the people in front of you won't, turn, won't get into the intersection. It's a minute and a half cycle anyway, you know. I can't tell you. It's like you'll sit there three, four cycles. Just waiting for the light to turn green. And so, of course, the temptation is to go ahead when the light is red. And, but what I really want to do, I want to, I want to write the town of Fuquay Varina and say, hey. Now, they have fixed it on Sunday mornings. Thank the Lord. Thank you, God, for doing that. Sunday mornings, you don't have to sit there for a minute and a half while nobody comes. So... But I want to write and say, hey, can you do something about this? I mean, look, they, they repaved it, and I thought, hey, we're getting, they're going to put in the lane. No, no. You know, that's kind of the way that people treat God's law when you think about it. If it doesn't work for you, just adjust it and make it work for you. And if you don't have the power to adjust it, find a theologian, find a pastor. Who can adjust it for you and make the law palatable, doable? That's how the Apostle Paul could say in Philippians 3 before he was saved, he looked, look, concerning the law, I was blameless. That didn't mean that he had, had never disobeyed God's command in any way, but it may, means that he had found a way and the entire system had found a way to be considered blameless. After 
he was saved, Paul understood it far differently. Before Jesus, he thought that he was justified on the basis of the works of the law. After the Lord revealed himself to Paul on the Damascus road, he recognizes we have already seen that no one is justified by the works of the law, but rather our justification is won by Jesus. And when we repent of our sins and we believe that Jesus died for us, we're born again. So since we cannot be justified by the works of the law, does the law have any meaning for the Christian? How many people do you say, I'm not an Old Testament kind of person, I'm a New Testament kind of person? The law does have meaning for the believer, but the role it plays in the believer's life is much debated. Even the way this third point is stated can lead to strong disagreement and different conclusions, but it's going to have to do. So for this final purpose, we'll say that the law is designed to serve as, as a guide for God's people showing us what pleases Him. By the way, I mentioned a few weeks ago about vertigo. Vertigo, if you've ever had vertigo, you know, if you turn your head a certain way and you can start going. But it's, it's far more than that when you're going through a period of time where you've got vertigo. I was fell over a while ago. I don't know if you saw that. And I'm not, I don't think it was just some of this, you know, but... but it, it really does. It, it, it makes you feel all kinds of things. So I'll, I'll try not to mention it in the future, but if you ever see me a little unsteady on my feet, that is the case. It makes you just feel kind of queasy and woozy and all of that all together. Now, where were we? Uh, serve as a guide for God's people. You know, you know, there's a fair amount of Scripture. And again, look, since this is so hotly debated, I wouldn't even go there, except that it's so important. There's a fair amount of Scripture that indicates that the law has lost its power over the believer. As has been said repeatedly here, there was never anything wrong with the law. The problem was, was with us. So, and there is some debate about what I'm going to say, but, but a lot of people think that, that the law legitimately offered life if you could keep the law. But of course, that was impossible. So then people say, so is it really a legitimate offer or not? I don't know. I'll let you worry about that. But remember, the law was given to show us our sin and to point us to Christ. In Romans 6, Paul said that one of the reasons we can live in victory over sin is that we're no longer under the law, but under grace. 6.14, for sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 7 says that we have died to the law, and it no longer has power over us. We're no longer held captive by the demands of the law. Romans 7 actually has a whole lot to say about the law and the believer's relationship with the law. So how does it work if we are no longer beholden to the law? Well, wait just a minute. It, it, it's not that the law no longer is true. It absolutely is true. It's just that we are no longer servants of a master who can never be pleased. 
the law has, instead of being our enemy, in very many senses become our friend. It's now a guide revealing God's heart and His desire for His children. And the Spirit empowers us to live accordingly in a manner pleasing to the Lord in ways that the flesh was never able to do. We can now live selflessly and with grateful hearts. Not perfectly. Not perfectly. Which is why repentance is such an important part of a Christian's life. And while truly anybody can say, hey, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm just human, you know. And and that's not true repentance. Don't get caught up on whether you were sorry enough or, or whether you said it just right. Just believe God. If I confess my sin, He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin. The Spirit, while we will never achieve perfection until we stand before Jesus Christ, the Spirit makes a godly life a reality for believers. And Romans 8, 3 and 4 sums it up perfectly. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So look at that. Verse 4 tells us that we can meet the righteous requirement of the law. Well, no, that's not what it says at all, is it? Look a little more closely. It's not that we actively fulfill the law. The verb is in the passive voice. Jesus lived and died so that the righteous requirements of the law or the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. He's doing the fulfilling of the righteous requirement. When we stand before God, am I righteous enough to be in His presence? Well, because of Jesus, yes. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in me because of what Jesus has done. Now, how it is, if you you are invited to a special event, you've got access and someone comes with you, they have access because you have access. We have access to the Father because Jesus has won that access for us. So, are you hanging? We're just going to take one more step, and probably some of you are thinking, uh, it's like my feet are on water already, I'm over my head, so what do you mean another step? Just hang in there, one more thought. And truly, this is the place where we were heading all along with this lesson on law and gospel. In Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, is it, the righteous requirements of the law being fulfilled in us, does that, that does it involve our justification or our salvation only, or does it involve our sanctification? That is, our spiritual growth as God conforms us more and more into the image of Christ. Is this talking only about how Jesus saves me? Or is it also talking about the way He lives through me to obey the law? I think the answer is what we were singing about today. 
It is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20. That sentiment is over and over in the Scripture. When you think about Romans, the first three chapters talk about our sin, and then towards the end of chapter 3, all the way through chapter 5, it begins... Paul is talking about our justification in Christ by faith and what he has done. And then in Romans 6 through 8, he's talking about our sanctification. And Romans 8 talks about how the Spirit is the one who lives through us to fulfill the works of the law. The Spirit gives us the power to live according to God's character and guidelines that we see in the law. Here's the problem with believing the law or believing the gospel, excuse me, for salvation and then reverting to a a, a life that tries to please God by living according to the law. Yes, by the power of the Spirit, but but still with a sense that it's all up to me to obey the law if God is going to be pleased with me. When law is mixed with gospel, you will turn inwardly very quickly. You'll start saying, do I measure up? Look, I know nobody can measure up for salvation, but am I the kind of Christian that God wants me to be? And we will very quickly become legalistic because the sins that most people think are the worst sins are the ones that I don't have as much struggle with. Of course, the ones that I do have problems with, those are kind of secondary sins and we're just not going to deal with those. Or... We give up trying to be holy after repeated failures. And either way, we're adjusting the law to accommodate our failures. There's so very much more to say on this. But we're moving along already uh, towards the end. So let's wrap up our time considering a few implications of rightly understanding law and gospel in Scripture. First, the first implication, because God revealed himself first to us or to the nation of Israel through the Mosaic law, it's important for us to know and understand God on the basis of the law. That is not to say that we are to relate to God on the basis of the law. That's no good. We can't do that but that we understand Him and all of His holiness as He has revealed Himself in Scripture. In other words, know your your Old Testament. And as the gospel enters into this, remember that you are seeing God as He is, not only in His holiness according to the law, but in His mercy and grace to all those who believed his promises. Furthermore, do not soften the law when you are sharing Christ with others. Don't soften the law with all its demands and penalties. You don't have to be offensive when you share the law, but if you're going to give the gospel, you first have to relate to God according to the law. You have to help people to see that they don't meet the standard, and they never can. And the penalties are harsh. Again, not in our day because, hey, it's not a day where I can feel comfortable about all the demands of the law. But you have to show people the law before you show them Jesus. Jesus. 
Don't encourage those without Christ to straighten up their lives, straighten out their lives. Show them the full demands of the law so that they may see the full beauty of the gospel. Know God as he revealed himself in his word and be grateful for the next point. The law commands that we love perfectly. The gospel proclaims that we are perfectly loved. I got this point and the fourth one from a, from a book just simply called Law and Gospel by a couple of uh, three different authors. Um, Paul Zahn, I think, is one of those guys. I, I can't even recall their names right now. You may think you're a pretty good person and that God is lucky to have you. Until something happens in your life, it changes everything. It could be that diagnosis. It could be that accident. It could be some incredible failure on your part. Aren't you glad? And a failure as a believer, as a child of God. Aren't you glad that God loves you unconditionally? The worst thing you can do, look, when you failed, and it's especially when it's public, is to try to justify what you've done. Just say, I was wrong, I repent of my sin. That's gospel. And you're living, but when you try to justify, you're, you're back to the law. And the law is a merciless tyrant. Beautiful, holy God that it shows. The demands anyway. Another way of saying this is that the law is about do, the gospel is about done. I, this week, the Lord has begun to impress on my heart as that happens. Uh, the importance of, of, of thinking about outreach and evangelism. And I think that's going to be our next series. It's going to be about evangelism. What is it? Why do we do it? How do we do it? How do we share Christ with others? If you don't know and I'm not sure when that's going to be because I don't know how long Hebrews is going to take, by the way. Uh, if you don't know how to share Jesus, you can just say this. Religion is about do. What can I do to please God? The gospel is about what Jesus has done for you. He died for you. He lived that life you couldn't live. And then he died in your place. And you have to cry out to him, I'm sorry for my sins, Lord. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, but I believe that Jesus died for me. And then even though you don't have to say this, it just helps people sometimes. Oh, Lord, Lord, save me. I ask you to save me for Jesus' sake. It just helps cement it in people's minds when they do that. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord, what does it say? Will be saved. When we, as believers, when we relate to God primarily from a law perspective, we sense condemnation. And you know what happens if you endure any horror long enough? You just become numb to it. I went to a very legalistic school right out of uh, high school when the Lord saved me when I was 18. I went to this legalistic school. I went to a Bill Gothard seminar and... You know, when you go to a Bill Gothard seminar, you just feel like apologizing to everything. I'm so sorry, Podium. I hit you too hard a while ago. You just live in this under this, this, this guilt, constant guilt. And you know what happens after a while? 
when after three or four years a telephone pole doesn't drop on your head, you just become numb to it. And if you live under the law sooner or later, you will just become numb and then you'll live like you want to. When we believe that God relates to us on the basis of the gospel as believers, we long to please the one who loves us perfectly. Third, believing the gospel not only gives us hope of eternal life, it frees us to serve God from the heart rather than from a sense of duty or self-preservation. Look, many of us begin the Christian life believing the gospel, but we quickly seek to live according to the law. And you may be surprised at how that looks sometimes. It may look like this. Oh, oh, I better not forget to have my quiet time this morning because then God would be displeased with me. Should you have a quiet time? Absolutely. But only to... To, to, to show you the beauties of God's love for you, not so that you can check off a list and say, now I'm good with God. Because somewhere it's always going to feel hollow. It's always going to feel like, have I really done enough? Don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that you can live any way that you want to as a Christ follower. You can't just say that you're being attacked because you're a strong Christian and make it so. It's not a reality just because you say it. The New Testament repeatedly condemns an antinomian. Namos is the Greek word for law. Antinomian means against law. An antinomian attitude of, hey, now that I'm saved, I can live any way I want to. Absurd, God says. How can you say that? It is utterly ridiculous. He said that just before he said, you're free to live for the Lord because you're not under law but under grace. But it doesn't mean that you can just live any way you want to. At the same time, We are called to remember that it is His love for us and the Spirit working in us that frees us to serve the Lord. In fact, the law of Christ, a term which the New Testament authors employ, or James calls it the perfect law of liberty, it's a higher standard than the Mosaic law. It is accomplished by the Spirit, though, and not by our fleshly efforts. So forth thing we want to think about. Living life in the truth of the gospel frees us from the busyness of life and allows us to rest in our identity with Christ. With Christ. You ever catch yourself saying certain things so many times that that becomes your identity, who you are? Here's one of mine. When you say, hey Brad, how you doing? I'm, I say, hey, I'm doing great, but man, I'm really busy. You hear that a lot, don't you? In fact, you say that a lot, probably, some of you. I'm really busy because if I'm busy, I'm accomplishing something. I'm doing, I'm getting somewhere. My life means something if I'm busy. Maybe that's one of the reasons that that illness is so devastating. Because it keeps us from accomplishing. It keeps us from being busy, and busyness is our identity. If you read Scripture carefully, 
you're going to find that God is far more concerned with you being than He is with you doing. If you'll focus on being, the doing will flow naturally from it. If you're too busy to be, then all of your, all of your doing is wood, hay, and stubble. That's convicting to me. But the gospel is good news, as good a news for the believer as it is for the unbeliever. And which leads us to the last point. The gospel frees us to forgive others, making us fully free. Now, if you're just looking right down the list, you might say, huh? I, you know, I get all those others. In, but what about this? Well, when you think about it, it's the ultimate test. If we live our lives beholden to the law, we not only judge ourselves by the standards that we have determined to be God's law, but we judge others that way as well. And wouldn't you know it, we tend to judge others by their worst faults and we judge ourselves by our best intentions. Not our best acts, but our best intentions. Are we ever more like Jesus than when we are forgiving those who are mistreating us? Believing the gospel frees us not only to live in this life and so, so much of the New Testament is about, hey, you guys really need to get along. You need to treat one another well. You need to care for one another. You need to quit caring so much about your own needs and and look out for the needs of others. Believing the gospel frees us to forgive others and there is no freedom quite like that. And the law just won't get you there. But Jesus will. Let's pray. Father, in this uh, study of Hebrews in which we have, have gone a, a far from it, but the, the, the book of Hebrews, if any book in the Bible does this, it encourages us to know more about you. From all over Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, we recognize, Lord, that your law is good and perfect and holy but with regard to doing anything for us, it, it feels almost, I, 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 even when I've said it today, I just want to recoil and pull back. But the writer of Hebrews says it's useless with regard to doing anything good for us. But Jesus is everything to us. And when I live believing the truth of the gospel, I recognize it is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. Thank you for this beautiful truth. Thank you that you saved us. And thank you that saving us did not then take us back to the law, but that you treat us the same way according to the gospel. Lord, call us to repentance to acknowledge our sin, to confess our daily sins.
and help us to do it moment by moment and believe the full sufficient power of the cross of Jesus Christ. The life I live, I no longer live in the flesh, but by the power of God, of Jesus who died, was crucified for me. Thank you, Lord, for that kind of love. In Jesus' name. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ raised to life. He who died, he is more than that. He is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers or height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.